Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate here in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we're talking in the first two segments about COVID and what is going on. We've been hearing a lot about the Delta variant, the latest version of the COVID-19, and how it's somewhat causing a rebound with regard to an increase or a spike in infections. Questions about masking, questions about whether vaccinated people are at risk or can be carriers. Talking about it tonight is Chris Phillips, uh, also a relative of mine, my brother Chris from Alexandria, Ohio. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. It is an honor there, big brother. <laughs> hey, well, uh, beside being my brother, what other qualifications do you have to talk? It sounds like my cousin Vinny. What other qualifications do you have to talk about this subject? <laughs> well, right on. Well, as you went into law, um, I went into healthcare. So I was thinking about this. I've been in healthcare for over 40 years now. I started as an orderly in a nursing home and a candy striper, actually at Southwest General Hospital when I was 16. And um, that has spanned for 40 years, um, all the way up to overseeing several large health systems, a very large population health team. Um, Currently, the the population health team that I oversee is responsible for um, over 3 million lives. Um, I run a high-risk nurse triage line that's 24-7. So out of those 3 million lives, we stay uber-focused pretty much on the top 1 million who are high and rising risk. So myself and and another 14 nurses who work around the clock uh, take calls from from people of all ages, um, just about COVID, about their existing conditions. So I'm kind of like farmer's insurance. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two, right? (laughs) Well, that's right. Well, another way of looking at it also, because since COVID started, and we're doing this for over a year now, uh, you're in the world of telemedicine, telemed. And yeah. um, in, in a sense, you're a first responder when people really make that decision. They need to call somebody, at least among the three million subscribers or patients you have. They're going to call you or your nursing staff. So it, in that sense, you're a first responder. And uh, with regard to the COVID situation, what's your view of, of, of what we're doing? I know where we've been, but where are we now and where are we going, do you think? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. You know, we, we've all grown as a society, as a healthcare community. We, we definitely have grown and matured in our healthcare understanding. Um, unfortunately, right at this moment, though, as, as you all know, there's still palpable confusion, fear, division, some frustration. You know, I mean, we, we, we saw some light at the end of the tunnel when we all went through, or many of us went through vaccines. Um, but now with the Delta variant, that, that's kind of you know, the CDC is going back and forth on the mask outlines and all of that. So I feel like uh, maybe as a society, we have grown and matured together, yet we're not fully mature. And there's still many issues to work through. And it's, I really like what you said. I want to highlight a little bit about the virtual world, because that's going to be one of the positives. As, as you and I talk over the next uh, 25 minutes or so, um, I, I have some really great positive news for everybody who's listening tonight. I, I want you guys to all hold on and get to that part. But if we rewind about two years ago, uh, right before COVID, companies like mine were building massive virtual visits, both doctor virtual visit and nurse virtual visit uh, care lines. And they were really being underutilized. And most of the insurance companies weren't paying for them anyhow or not paying the same amount for it. 
And then, thank goodness, like so many things that went remote, when COVID hit, we were able to just flip. And we went from about uh, maybe four or 500 virtual visits a month to over 10,000 virtual visits a month once COVID hit. And we've been keeping those stats. The type of nurse line I run now, when a, nurse, when a patient calls in, their chart is automatically populating a screen. And we are in continual chat and contact with emergency room level doctors who are off shift, who are working in a, pre, in a virtual clinic waiting to take calls. So we've seen quite a, a maturation of healthcare delivery. Wow. Well, in your position, you know, with nurses, how many nurses do you supervise for these uh, telemed lines? There's 14 of us. And, and, you know, with a lot of the nurses leaving, getting burned out, leaving the front lines, I have amazing nurses. Um, my nurses all have uh, advanced degrees or certifications. Two of them have their doctor's degree. One works at the daytime during, at the NIH. <laughs> so a lot of people don't realize when they're calling a nurse um, at two in the morning, they may be talking to somebody who's extremely highly qualified and they have their ear uh, for five minutes, one-on-one to really talk through their personal journey. Um, I think that's another thing that's really impressed me about post COVID on a good level is I really, we really get to embark on people's personal healthcare journey. It's not as, so much a one-off, you know, hey, I got a cold, I got a fever, or I have COPD, which there used to be a lot of one-offs. Uh, now, you know, patients really are getting vested with their healthcare providers in their entire journey or story and, and, and how to nav- continue to navigate this pandemic. I, I would assume there's some mechanism that with all the subscribers slash patients, and all the doctors who contribute to uh, w- with their wisdom into the situation, uh, you're somewhat the uh, lightning rod for the latest information on everything, including the COVID situation. How, do, how does that me- mechanism work so that you and your nurses have available anytime, 24-7, mm-hmm. yeah. the latest yeah. information? How do you do that? Wow, that's a great question. So, well, we start with best-in-class software. So we have the best-in-class uh, cloud-based, decision-based software. Now, even though we're all highly experienced nurses and doctors working the queue, um, you know, we're, we're able to access, uh, like, for instance, the triage phone um, protocols I use are over, there are about 630-plus protocols that we screen through quickly. So if it's a fever, we, we probably have about 40 different fever protocols we use. Now, here's a secret behind the scenes. <laughs> We're also looking at the news feeds, too. Now, we just have to be careful which news feed we're reading. Um, but on top of the, the triage protocol, uh, we're like you. You know, we're looking at, um, you know, CNN, Fox News, you know, whoever is sending the latest and greatest updates practically uh, trying to weigh real time. Is this, is, this credible, is this a credible news feed? Does this have a bearing? Um, you know, for instance, I was navigating a patient um, who was, vaccinated, but was just coming back from Florida with a fever and cough. And I had to weigh on the fly, this person's coming from a very high transmission area. So I have to be extra careful, um, kind of have to do this on the fly, combined what I'm seeing in the news with Mm -hmm. software to help navigate him to safety. While doing that on the fly, I mean, you're getting about how many calls coming through a day or 
per week? Because I know each day and each time frame oh, yeah. is different. We get about three. We get over three thousand calls a month. So for someone like me, most of my nurses have been on hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations all hours of the day and night with people of all ages. And uh, you know, we, you know, one thing a good nurse or good clinician does or learns to do is hear a person's voice. I mean, when I hear a stranger start talking to me, um, I've gotten so attuned, like any clinician, to their breathing, their stress level, um, um, their cognition. I mean, you know, so much is learned within the first 30 seconds of just hearing a person's story. Um, so yeah, we've, it, we've really honed in on both the, the, the telephone and virtual visit platform. So we're, we're going to take a break in, break in about a minute here, but I uh, wanted to find out some more things because when we come back, I want to find out what the calls are, are like now, what, what is actually happening out there. But uh, it's almost like there's a, a psychological element to listening to what a caller is like and making the sound of the patient calling part of the diagnostic technique. So is there a specific... That, that, Go ahead. It, yeah, and not just giving them medical advice, but kind of taking care of them mentally. Like, you know, one thing I do frequently, this is good for all of you, I could I could bring this up after the break if you want. I can start there. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that because it's really interesting because... Oh, we still got a minute? Okay. Well, we're finishing up for less uh, than a minute, but, but the thought is, let me, oh, wrap, let, let me wrap it up now. Hold your thought, Chris, because when we come back, we're going to start with that. But uh, what we want to do is uh, again, look at the fact that when people call these nurse hotlines, this telemedicine, they're getting real medical advice. And uh, they they shouldn't hesitate to call and, and look for that advice, not only medically speaking, but psychologically as well. Uh, they'll be able to do that. So in any event, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Chris Phillips, uh, who heads up a telemedicine program for over 3 million people over on the, the East Coast. We're talking about what's happening with COVID and what kind of calls he's getting. When we get back with Chris, we're going to talk about uh, the kinds of calls he's getting and what's happening with COVID. And and are we better prepared for handling the second or third or fourth wave, whatever this is? Okay, we're back on the air uh, with uh, Chris Phillips. Chris, how are you out there? Oh, great. So I was leaving (laughs) off. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you loud and clear. We're ready to come back on here. Telematic. I think this one example will really paint a great picture about what kind of calls I'm taking and one way, you know, a really good telemed um, clinician can care for somebody physically and mentally right on the spot. We've been getting a lot more calls about possibly chest pain, chest pressure, anxiety, difficulty breathing, just because of all of the news churning about all ages, you know, cardio, um, cardiomyopathies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, So one of the things in triage is just to have people take a slow, deep breath, hold it for about four or five slow seconds, and then exhale. And often when I have patients do that, as a nurse, I'm ruling out so many things. I'm ruling out an actual cardiac event, a pulmonary event, maybe a pulmonary embolism or heart attack. And at the same time, um, they're feeling better because I can tell them, look, if you can do this, (laughs) you're probably not having a real cardiac event. And often with stress and anxiety, um, it's also kind of a form of, of healthy meditation, just really focusing on, on slow, calm breathing. So I'll just tell them, when you're starting to feel this anxiety, you know, just kind of take a couple of these really deep breaths to kind of, you know, move yourself out of this. Now, of course, if you do have a positive symptom when you do that, then, you know, seek immediate care. 
but it's all kinds of tricks of the trade like that we're, we're learning to do. A question with regard to the, the fact that we've gone through this big rush of everyone waiting in long lines and getting their vaccine, and now it's sort of slowed down to what seems like a trickle of people getting uh, vaccines. They've been refusing vaccines, and of those, you have some people with medical reasons why they shouldn't get vaccines, but uh, other people, they just are refusing vaccines for a lot of reasons that are are based on things that run contrary to the science on it. Uh, when you get calls from people who have refused the vaccines, but they're fearful of COVID, that they might have COVID, how do those calls go? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, usually for unvaccinated people, um, they're often being compelled to call a nurse line <laughs> because either their workplace their daycare, their school, or their travel plans um, are being hindered by not being vaccinated. So, um, you know, often people are not moving on that decision on their own. It takes some sort of, unfortunately, it seems to be some sort of external pressure by something in their life, or maybe a loved one who all of a sudden, you know, has a you know, really bad form of it. Um, I, you know, one of the, the things I cannot stress enough is for people to really get connected with a really good primary care provider. You know, so many of us who've gone through our life relatively young and healthy, you know, we go to the urgent care when we're sick. Um, we maybe see a primary care provider. Um, but this is really the time for everybody to, to get engaged with a really do their homework, find a primary care provider. They're really pleased with it. They're in the same wavelength and then really use that relationship, really leverage that relationship to mm -hmm. make these individual vaccine decisions and, and not just go off of news feeds or, you know, a, a telemed nurse. That, may, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I asked about, you know, what happens when people who refuse vaccines call. What, what about people who had vaccinations? Are you getting many calls or any calls of people who are having uh, bad reactions to the vaccinations they just had? And if so, what are those like? Yeah, no, we've, we've represented, um, you know, millions of patients who, who got the vaccines, got them early, got all kinds of, you know, vaccines, all, all, all the three forms. And um, all of the calls were just your very basic, um, you know, a little bit of soreness, maybe a little cough, you know, the, the expected um, 24 to 72-hour reactions. Nothing serious whatsoever. Um, I, I think, what can I say about both? vaccinated and unvaccinated, they're definitely playing on each other, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And you see that in the news and you definitely see that in real life. You know, some who've been very diligent to get vaccinated, um, you know, now they see in the news that um, they can possibly spread, you know, the variant to an unvaccinated loved one or an unvaccinated loved one can spread it back to a vaccinated loved one and it can be manifested um, as an outlier. So, they're interdependent. You can't, you cannot separate the interdependence of that. So I think, I think the calls and discussions going on are very personal, individualized, and um, very interrelated to loved ones and workplaces. You mentioned earlier in the first segment that you have some positive news and uh, the yeah. action steps that we can share. I, I think we're really hungry for some positive news. Finally, what, what do you got for us? Chris? Oh. Absolutely. Please listen up to this. This is this is really happening. I mean, I meet with the major 
people who do what I do weekly, uh, from Humana, United Healthcare, you know, National Directors of Disease Management, Population Health, we are all working together like never before. Hospitals, insurance companies, primary care organizations, we are all, you know, this has definitely been a great wake-up call for all of us to work closely together. So here's my positive action step. Once again, find a good primary care. Even if you've never done this, find a primary care provider, get your free annual wellness visit, you know, get that done so that when important or difficult decisions or diseases come up, you have somebody who really knows you. You know, your annual wellness visit is a 30 to 45 minute EDI visit. Next is look for those technologies that are out there. Just about every primary care provider now has an app, has a phone app, has a virtual visit platform, has an associated nurse call line, whether it's with, you know, Cigna or the Cleveland Clinic, has home testing kits. And we are just starting now to integrate Fitbit. So even if your Fitbit's not integrated, at least when you call with a little bit of chest pain, you can tell me off your Fitbit, you have a regular rhythm of 72 and a normal sinus rhythm with an oximeter of 90. So really step into the technology now. You know, don't wait. Um, until you're sick. The, I think the days of random care, going to urgent cares or random ZocDocs is over. Even, you know, this is a healthcare journey. We're all, we've all embarked on a very complex healthcare journey. It's our journey. It's our story. So find the right people and really get vested with them in their technology. And finally, a lot of people ask me, and what do I do when I really get in trouble with healthcare? Uh, you know, I, I'm getting overwhelmed, maybe financially, maybe with a healthcare condition. Really remember that really any healthcare delivery system has social workers and has care managers or case managers. And that's, mm-hmm. that's my major background. I'm a career case manager. So whether you're working in a hospital system or with a payer, insurance company, or a large primary care group, if you feel like you're getting overwhelmed, then look, I'm, I'm personally requesting to talk to a case manager, a care manager, a social worker. These are free services, people like me who are just absolutely specialized in taking complex or, or journeys that are becoming complex and, and helping navigate people personally through those and, and considering their personal beliefs and preferences through that. Well, we've been doing this now for over a year and developing the details and the protocols for how to do telemedicine like this. And like you mentioned, mm-hmm. as, aspirationally, getting people to uh, get their primary care physician and get their annual wellness checkups. Uh, in the year we've been doing this, and with your 3 million subscribers, are, are they with the program? Are they accepting this? Or do you see any pushback? Or uh, how, how are we oh, doing? definitely. Yeah, now we're doing excellent. Now, now this is just my viewpoint. We, we have an excellent primary care platform, um, very robust app, you know, a phone app. Um, patients can basically, when a patient's starting to get sick <laughs> and they're right. not sure what to do, they can, they can just touch their phone app, immediately talk to a high-qualified nurse who has their chart open. We can immediately either pivot that patient into an ED-level virtual visit, all for the same cost, of a primary care visit, um, or we can schedule them next day with their primary care provider. And, um, you know, just the technology's out there. If you just look, if you really look, you'll see, oh, yeah, there are these free nurse lines. There is this app I can download with my primary care. 
Um, so yeah, people are definitely pivoting to that, even relatively healthy people, because their their journey is becoming more complex. You know, their their place of work, their daycare, their school is demanding more and more of them, and they're not sure how to balance that with their personal beliefs and boundaries. And this is where a good primary care system can help them logically and intelligently work through this. Well, it sounds like we're, we're on our way. Uh, we have like about 30 seconds. How, how does it look? Are we getting out of this? Or are we still bogged down in the mire of COVID? We, we definitely are because hospitalizations and deaths are down. Always remember that. You know, the statisticians will always, the, the good statisticians will remind you. So many of the doom and gloom news feeds are about new infections, um, which are, are a concern. But the real concern is hospitalizations, ICU days and deaths, which are remarkably down. So well, even if you do get a breakthrough infection, yeah, you're more likely to, to fly through this with, with better immunity. Excellent, excellent. Well, bottom line, good news about COVID-19. Everybody, just watch out. Get your vaccination. Call your doctor and have a safe, healthy life and enjoy the summer, right? Thank you, Chris. And hug, and hug a nurse. Hug and hug, a nurse. Hug a nurse. <laughs> okay, Chris, thank you so very much. Thank Thanks you so much. Everyone. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to uh, State Representative Tom Patton, who joins us from time to time, to give us an update on what's going on in Columbus. So, Tom, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Nick. Well, as I mentioned, Columbus, Ohio, uh, we're now at the early part of August. What, what's happening in Columbus? And our, first off, how are we doing with COVID? Mm-hmm. Are, are we really going back into an extension of our uh, pandemic problems, or does it look Well, I think that um, not in Columbus. I had the opportunity to meet uh, with the head of infectious disease for uh, the Cleveland Clinic. Very nice uh-huh. lady. And, Good. Uh, we talked about the upcoming fall. She said we're going to really be hit hard, which kind of surprised me. said kind of like the, like the flu season. She said far worse than that. And uh, I think what we're seeing now, is, if I'm reading the papers correctly, a little over 98% of the current COVID cases are from the unvaccinated people. The majority of people that are calling my office now are concerned about being forced to be mandated. And I assure them that the state will never force anybody to be to be vaccinated. However, you know, it does not preclude an employer from perhaps making that a condition of employment. They can't tell a private company how to operate. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm hoping that as time goes by, when the FDA gives it it's the drug, it's full approval, not a temporary approval. I'm hoping that will convince the the, uh, the folks that have some, some concerns and some doubts that uh, this is going to be okay, you know, for me to take. And uh, I, I, I look back on the polio epidemic, uh or the polio vaccine, rather, when, you know, I was one of nine children. My mom and dad lined it up. We went to uh, the local high school. We took our sugar cube, and we were able to successfully eradicate polio. 
actually eradicated worldwide. And uh, but I'm sure that before that vaccine was made available, that it was um, it was uh, truly you know tested and vetted. And this one, given the circumstances, you know, with COVID, we had to get something out pretty quick with only a temporary uh, uh, portion of it being able to, you know, to or not temporary portion, a temporary slot that said, okay, we we mm-hmm. get temporary approval. And there's a lot of people maybe just waiting for the full approval. Well, you know, the story you give about uh, the polio vaccine, uh, having everyone cooperate and everyone getting the the vaccine and becoming immunized from polio essentially eliminated polio from uh, a public health problem. Uh, the, um, the the benefit of these public uh, health actions are, are clear that if we didn't have this divisiveness going on and we didn't have the blockage of universal vaccination, that COVID would have been gone long ago. Uh, what's your take on what's blocking the uh, universal vaccination of people. Why, why why this resistance that makes us different than any other vaccination program? Why are we living with COVID? It, it, it goes back, to, I think, from what I hear from a lot of people, that because it doesn't have the full FDA approval yet, uh, a lot of people mistakenly, I believe, think it's just a bad case of the flu, you know, and that because it seems like the people that, you know, have succumbed to this disease, you know, where it had we're elderly with certain morbidities, but that's certainly not, and you know, the entire case has been some young people and some other folks that, you know, that this disease has hit. And I, you know, for the life of me, I understand civil liberties and those folks who advocate to make sure their civil liberties aren't uh, denied. And that's why I said the state will never mandate that, you know, we'll never make it. But you're hoping, but again, hope that, and the herd immunity can't truly exist until a lot more folks you know, begin to get the uh, the vaccine. I think it was interesting how the NFL talk about putting a gun to their players' heads. They said if the if your team, you know, cannot play because of some breakout and some exposure among your team, you will forfeit the game and forfeit your paycheck for the game. And the players are paid a game check. So one seventeenth in the seventeen game season, you know, picture one point seven million. That's hundred grand that you're going to lose because the guy across the locker room from me did not take the vaccine and expose you guys all to the things. So now you can't play the game Sunday. So I, I, um, I wouldn't want to be a yeah. player that cost the other 52 guys not to get a paycheck that week. Thousands of dollars. Came you know. Well, I was talking to some people the other day, and uh, the, the question came up, and it was a comparison of uh, parent-child uh, relationships. And it has to do with a parent uh, having better information, more experience, and having the right answers. Telling a child they're going to be sick, they are sick, they need to take medicine. And uh, the children ultimately, under the pressure from their parents, they'll take the medicine and they'll get better. And it's a foreseeable result. Take the medicine, you'll get better. But what happens, you know, nine times out of ten, the children, if it's a bad-tasting medicine, are going to say, I don't want to. And because of that, if they were allowed to say they don't want to and not take it, they won't take the medicine. So, you know, some of the thing going on here is that the arguments I'm hearing is that the government can't make me take it. it sounds more like a child saying, I don't have to take the medicine. And in the meantime, we're going to live with COVID, I think, for, for quite a while. 
Let, let me ask this question. Um, is there anything anything in the legislative uh, in the legislative planning that's COVID-related that uh, is being talked about at this point? The only thing that seems to um, be spoken about, there is a House Bill 248, which simply says that the government can't force anybody to take uh, the, the, the COVID shot. And all the uh, folks that call my office that are um, the, the folks that don't want to take the shot and don't want to be, they just are encouraging me. When House Bill 248, I don't even think it's going to come out for a vote. It's kind of nebulous because we're never going to mandate them anyway. This is just kind of like voting you're allowed to breathe. You know, yeah. there just isn't there isn't anything in place that would ever allow Ohio, or I don't think any other state, you know, would be able to do it either, to to forcibly say, you know, you have to be vaccinated by such and such a date. And I think President Biden, when he said we're going to go door to door, the flurry of phone calls that came to my house that day for fear that they were going to be going up and down there. But again, I think the president was simply making a point of we're going to, you know, try to get the information out, try to convince the folks that this is really safe. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a safe vaccination. And, you know, your chances of being having a reaction to the vaccine are far worse than your chances of not getting the vaccine. And, you know, in the president, I think he simply meant we're going to do the best we can because you can't go knocking at people's doors saying we know you didn't get the vaccine because simply put, you, then you would know their medical history. Nobody's allowed to know your medical history. That's called the HIPAA violations, right? And so if going up and down the street and they said, well, we're going to skip Nick Phillips' house and, you know, but we're going to go to Tom Patton's house, because, you know, he didn't have the vaccine, which, by the way, I got mine as soon as my age allowed me to get it. I I thought I was confident enough to get it. But, again, I wouldn't – again, you're talking child and, you know, parent-child. You know, children don't know what's good for them. We could argue that some adults don't know what's good for them. But at the end of the day, everybody gets to walk in that voting booth and cast a vote. So we, we trust everybody to vote. We have, you know, for a president, for a mayor, for a governor, we have to trust people to vote, you know, in their mind, whether they're not, they're comfortable with the vaccine. As I say, my hope is that when the, you know, the Federal Drug Administration gives it the final, you know, this was obviously rushed in as it had to be, uh, or else the deaths would have been even far greater. Uh, and I applauded the fact that, the former president dedicated $26 billion to Operation Warp Speed. You know, we're going to get, we're going to find a cure and we're going to, you know, or a vaccine, we're going to find it right away. And uh, ironically, it was the Thursday after Election Day that uh, Pfizer made their announcement they're ready to roll. Uh, I often wonder if there, it would have made any difference in the election that had they announced the Thursday before the Election Day, you know, that the vaccine that, you know, the former president had. Uh, you know, in one breath, you know, he, he it was a difficult battle for the president. He wanted to make sure the economy didn't completely fall apart, you know, and, and everything was shutting down. And so he was trying to show that brave face that, hey, we're on top of this. This is, you know, uh, the hydrochlorazine or whatever the heck it's called. You know, he was trying to promote that until somebody came out and said, you're not, you know, the FDA, you can't take that. You know, if some people are successful, said, why not? You know, but. You know, the president, 
and he may have, and, and without meaning to, he may have created a lot of doubt, though, in some people's minds. In his effort to kind of keep the economy going and try to promote this as, as being a, a manageable disease, he may have been inadvertently causing a lot of the, the, the seeds of doubt. Um, but again, you know, you can either try to keep the economy going, as he did, and uh, I think that uh, it was just a perfect storm. I think that, uh, uh, you know, again, I, I I don't blame anybody. I just think that uh, what we have to do is hope that the FDA says we've, we've researched it. We've now all set to give it the full, you know, stamp of approval, and hopefully a significant number of people will come out and and uh, and get the vaccine. It's, it's well, right now they'll see it sure. time. If it's currently right now in the month of July, ninety-eight point six percent of the cases that are being reported in Ohio are people that have not been vaccinated. How much more? I, I'm, I'm looking from the standpoint of you know one and one equals two. I think that if the only people getting it now are the unvaccinated people, for the most part, like a little over one and a half percent of people have vaccinated are still getting it. But that's only one percent, and I'd, I'd live with those numbers. Well, I, I agree. As you mentioned, seeds of doubt uh, with the FDA uh, final approval. I don't know if that's going to erase the seeds of doubt that the non-vaxxers uh, have at this point. But we're going to take a short break. We're talking to State Representative Tom Patton about what's going on in the Ohio legislature right now at the early part of August 2021. Don't go away. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHA, The Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate uh, for tonight. And we're talking to State Representative Tom Patton, who's kindly sharing some time with us tonight to tell us what's going on in Columbus. Uh, Tom, thank you again for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Nick. Yeah, we've been living with this COVID uh, pall over all of us for over a year. Uh, How's this been affecting things such as the economy, the budget, uh, I, I still, since we've been vaccinated, and a lot of people I know have been vaccinated, and the numbers have seemed to go go down for a while, it seems like we're, we're beyond this this COVID thing. Uh, how's the economy reacting, and is there anything the state legislature is looking at concerning the budget and taxes? Well, we finalized the two-year biennium budget that begins July 1st of this year and rolls through June 30th. Uh, of 22 or 23 rather. And, uh, um, you know, it, it turned out to be, uh, the, the, the revenue, the state come in, which is the sign of the economy was very, very, very positive. And the people of Ohio should feel very, very good about the current economic climate in Ohio so much so that we were able to afford, you know, an additional, as we try to, you know, the long-term goal, that actually began a couple governors ago was to try to eventually get rid of the state income tax. Many states don't have a state income tax, and we sometimes lose our retirees and other folks that have an opportunity to go somewhere to go to a state that doesn't have a state income tax. You picture a basketball player that could play anywhere, you know, uh, a free agent, you know, and so that's a consideration you have to have. But, you know, 
you know, people will say it was on an average of about a 4% tax cut um, that everybody got. The people making more money probably got 43 And so the critics will say, well, the wealthier got more money. They get a bigger tax cut. Uh, we only we did that because, in fact, we lowered the top tax rate from 4.3 to 3.9. And so to them, that was like a little bit over the 4%. But what we did do is to so the folks that make $25,000 a year, you know, which are some of our uh, our most challenged people, we gave them a 100% tax cut. They didn't have to pay a nickel in state sales, $20 or less. You see a lot of students, a lot of, you know, second-income family members are in that category. So I was delighted with that. Uh, we also came up with a, after a long-awaited, you know, uh, much criticized school funding situation, we came up with a new school funding plan It'll take four years to, to totally roll it out, but it's something that has been applauded both sides of the aisle. Uh, the teachers applauded it. The school systems applauded it. Uh, hopefully, it'll, in four years from now, we can get back. You know, the, the thing about the economy and the state economy is there's four, four major cost centers. You have, you know, Medicaid, and anytime someone's approved for Medicaid, and that's approved by the federal government. We don't have to say who gets approved or not. Um, but then the federal government will pay 60% of all the Medicaid bills. And then the state is responsible or mandated to pay the other 40%. And right now, that is over half of the budget. And it's just, it's just incredible, and it grows and grows and grows. The second thing is, is, is K-12 through funding. And then you get down to three or four. Three is higher ed, and fourth is prisons and corrections. Higher ed is 11% of the budget, and prisons is 9.5%. My great fear is what happens when we become the state that spends as much or more on higher ed than prisons. But uh, uh, we have some bills that we're trying to make sure that we get, especially people with drugs that are nonviolent offenders, trying to get them treatment instead of jail cells. And, uh, again, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a twofold purpose to try to actually solve someone who's fallen into the grass the, the grips of a drug addiction, you know, let's see if we can get them fixed first. Yeah, this doesn't deal with people that are selling drugs or things like that. Just drug users and people that may have got, gotten into a mild crime because they're trying to feed their habit. You know, we have to be more humane about some of these folks. Uh, but on the other hand, when you've got bad guys and bad gals, they've got to go to jail. I mean, we, we have to make people understand that crime. They do. It's still not going to be tolerated, you know, but we also have to be smart about it. That's correct. Hey, a question yeah. going back to new school funding. I know that some years ago the Ohio Supreme Court uh, pretty much struck down the uh, formula method of uh, returning money to cities and school districts. The new school funding program, uh, what are some of the hallmarks that would be different that we might know? Do, do communities that pay down to Columbus get that money back, or is it still somewhat iffy. No, I, I think what they're going to do is that we need to, you're absolutely right, it was 1991 when the schools, when the Supreme Court actually said you're not funding it properly. And 30 years uh, ago. Matter of fact, in 1998, and for two years, they took, the court took it over. They said, you can't fix it, we will. And two years later, the court said, well, we can't fix it either, but here, we'll put it back in your lap if you guys fix it. You know, and so the formula that we're using now is try to come up with the base of what a uh, what it costs 
to uh, educate a student and to make sure that that what it, what, if they need help from the state and the state steps in and will help them, uh, you get different schools, Orange School District, for example, and one of the very high-rated district, their cost per student is $24,000. Um, the cost per student in Solon, the top-rated school district, is $16,000. Now, those districts really aren't going to rely a whole lot on state funding. But you get some of the other districts, maybe like a Euclid or an East Cleveland, you know, uh, or Cincinnati schools, any of the big, any of the big eight we call them, like Akron, you know, Cleveland, Youngstown, Toledo, those big eight, you know, inner city school districts, um, not suburban districts. All these, you know, they're challenged, and they're always going to be challenged. And we have to we have to understand that, you know, and we have to try to work with them to make sure that uh, their funding stream is is such that. Those students, you know, get every bit as much of an opportunity because funding can't be the reason. Well, we wish we could get you the laptop, or we wish we could get you the visual aids that you need. We wish you could we could supply you with the tutoring that suburban schools get. We have to make sure that those students get everything that the other kids get. And I think it's simply, you know, another way. We, you know, we tried to do something like this in the past. You know, um, Cleveland City Schools, as an example. Some would say you just can't throw enough money at them, and it's just it's just a tough, tough, tough environment. But then it's more than a situation about money. Uh, it's you know it, there's there's other socioeconomic reasons why some of these students, and it's not the fault of the teachers or the administrators. It's just you know it's real tough. And these kids are in poverty. They come to school hungry. The very uh, I, I hear you. Well, well, a question. You know, I have a, I have a question. As uh, we're, we're looking ahead for maybe the next six months, and COVID has been not only uh, on sort of the top list item of what we're worried about, but all the collateral things that flow out of COVID, like the economy and the health of our, our community generally. Uh, how do you see the next uh, six months? Are, are we heading in the right direction, or do we still have some challenges we have to face? Well, I think we're the challenges are the are the folks that aren't going to get vaccinated because they're the folks that are going to get sick. They're the folks that are going to get it because if it looks as they said right now, one uh, percent of the cases, a little bit more, slightly more than one percent of the folks that are showing up with COVID positive tests, whereas ninety eight plus percent are getting COVID. So the the challenge is how it's going to affect you know the people. Now, right now, the governor is still going to say and his. He's not ordering a, a, ma- a mask uh, mandate. He's strongly suggesting, though, uh, this is the governor, that says that if you haven't been vaccinated, you should be, you should be courteous enough to wear and Of course, the same people that don't want to be vaccinated, many of them. We just can't. I mean, the, there's a mindset that I don't know the the, the means by which to say to folks, you don't want to have to worry, even in the schools. The school districts themselves will decide which, which, who has to wear the mask, who doesn't have to wear the mask. You know, and the, maybe the educators, the teachers only, otherwise it's the parents' decision. You know, it's all going to be an individual school district method, but, you know, it's very difficult for a teacher to teach with the mask. I have a daughter, one of my daughters is a teacher, and I can only imagine having to teach all day long when the kids, you know, and they're trying to hear what she's saying. 
you know, but it's always easier when you can follow the, you know, oh, the, I, the I hear you. Well, yeah. well, Tom, Pat, we're, we're out of time, but let, let's hope rational reality uh, takes hold here and gets rid of COVID by the next time we talk. So thank you, I Tom Patton, so. for joining us. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. And, th- and thank you for listening tonight. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and next week, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do 